Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, July 25th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Williamson goes on Colbert, an explanation of the DNC's donor system, primary candidates reflect on the Apollo 11 mission, how much the candidates are spending to get donors, Sanders pledges not to take money from drug companies or health insurance companies, and a new poll suggests that a public option is more popular than Medicare for all. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, Marianne Williamson went on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert on Monday and basically blew the doors off the place. Now, I've seen this happen before with Williamson. She's often dismissed as an unserious person, but then you give her a few minutes to talk and it becomes very clear that she knows what's up. Williamson thrives in an environment where she can speak at some length, making multi-part arguments. Now, this may be why the 60-second limit in the first debate did not work in her favor. So, Williamson appeared on Colbert and sat for about a nine-minute interview. Here is a clip from the middle of that, and Colbert speaks first. Love is not always associated with the presidency. The president has to do some tough things. He's also the commander. He or she is the commander-in-chief. Would you be able to order other people to go kill our enemies. Absolutely. I think that when you take an oath of office as the President of the United States, part of that oath means that you are Commander-in-Chief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think if you're going to talk about peace, you can't just back up into peace. I have great respect for the military. My father fought in World War II. My critique of our national security agenda is not a critique of the military. It's a critique of politicians who have based our national security agenda as much on short-term profit maximization for defense contractors as it has on any agenda for creating peace. When was the last time you heard a politician talking about peace on this planet in 20 years? That's why I want a Department of Peace. You can't just take medicine, you also have to cultivate health. Of course you take medicine when you need medicine, but you also take care of your nutrition, and you take care of your exercise, and you take care of other ways to cultivate health. Because sickness is the absence of health. Health isn't the absence of sickness. And war is the absence of peace. Peace isn't the absence of war. Well, actually... Okay, so I'm going to cut in right here and break this clip into two pieces because Colbert cut off that line of questioning and moved on at that point. So in that first clip, Williamson takes the notion of peace and repositions it in order to make her point. She defines peace as being akin to health, which is something that is well understood by your typical voter, probably better understood than the reality of war. This is the underlying argument that leads to defining war as an absence of peace rather than the other way around. And that is a very smart notion. It reframes the debate in a way that is truly meaningful. The notion of cultivating peace no longer sounds like an idea we'd associate with hippies. It becomes a strategy to avoid war. And I think that voters broadly do want to avoid war just like they want to maintain their own health. Okay, on to the next part of this clip, which comes immediately after the bit I just played. Listen in. Well, actually, this discussion actually happened in earnest um, uh, about 10 years ago. And Richard Holbrook, I was watching a conversation he was having with the great uh, Willie Nelson. I don't know if you know Willie. Of course, I come from Texas. Willie came up to Richard Holbrook and said, why don't we have a Department of Peace? Thank you. And and, and, And Richard Holbrook said to him, Willie, we do. It's called the State Department. It's just not used that way. Well, okay, let's talk about that. So we have a $750 billion military budget. Mm -hmm. Then the State Department 
development, which is mediation, diplomacy, and um, development, mm -hmm. is 40 billion. Now, within the State Department, we do have peace building agencies. What are peace builders? Now, first of all, peace builders, building peace is as sophisticated a level of expertise as is military skill, which is also certainly important. But the military is like a surgeon. Of course, we have to have the best surgeon. But any person knows you avoid surgery if at all possible. Now, our peace builders get less than $1 billion in the budget. And peace building skills, there are four factors which statistically prove that when present, they increase the incidence of peace and they decrease the incidence of violence. Number one, expanding economic opportunities for women. Number two, expanding educational opportunities for children. Number three, reducing violence against women. And number four, diminishing unnecessary human suffering whenever possible. This is why we should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk. In, in, in the debate... Yeah, so this is what Williamson's thing is. Colbert goes in with his own anecdote about a Department of Peace and Willie Nelson, but Williamson actually has the numbers. The numbers are the point here. Yeah, we have government programs that attempt to foster peace, but they are funded at around 5% of what we pay for the military. So now, this becomes an issue of funding a strategy to avoid war, which is easily understood and I think also easily agreed with by your typical voter. You might also note that Williamson's responses in the clips we just heard were relatively short. In the first clip, Williamson spoke for 55 seconds and got through the entire metaphor related to health and peace and war. She's speaking fast, but she makes it work. And in the second clip about the State Department, she spoke for 67 seconds. The rules for the debates next week mean each candidate will have 60-second responses with the possibility of a 30-second follow-up. It sure sounds to me like Williamson has been working hard at debate prep, and I can't wait to see the result on Tuesday. Now, a quick programming note. I want to thank Thomas Vale, who mentioned this appearance to me on Twitter. I don't see every piece of news every day, and it helps when listeners point out things that slip through the cracks. So thank you, Thomas, and thank you to others on Twitter. Keep this stuff coming because I am absolutely listening. Next up, a quick question that came in from a listener on Twitter through a direct message. Now, because that was a private message, I don't want to identify the listener directly, but I think it's safe to read the question. Quote, I have a question about the number of donors threshold. Do they go by quarters? For instance, if I donated in Q1, do I count as one of the 65,000 unique donors needed for the June debates? And do I still count for the 130,000 needed for the September debates? End quote. Excellent question and something I have never addressed on this show. And given all the things that are specific to certain quarters or windows of time, like the polling stuff, this part is actually pretty confusing. But there's good news here. The donor number is cumulative. So if you ever gave to one of these primary candidates' presidential campaigns, whether it was in Q1 or Q2, or even last year for candidates like Yang and Delaney, you are counted now and forever in the unique voter totals that the DNC uses to qualify candidates for the debates. Thanks for the question and keep them coming. My DMs on Twitter are always open.
The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from business to music to graphic design, you name it. So whether you've got a passion project you just need some knowledge to get through, or you're challenging yourself to learn a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. Today I want to tell you about a Skillshare class for graphic design. Now, many of us need to design something for work, whether it's a graphic for a presentation or some kind of logo or whatever. It's hard to know how to get started if you never took a class on it. Well, here comes the class. Graphic Design Basics Core Principles for Visual Design. In just 36 minutes, you'll learn the principles you need to get started with graphic design. And if you want more, the same instructors have more courses so you can dig in deeper. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That is correct. Skillshare is offering Election Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com slash PRH to start your two free months today. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a fantastic podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance, or you just want to know more about investing in a casual, fun interview format, this show is a must-listen. It's hosted by Meb Faber, who is CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So check out The Meb Faber Show wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. In an article for Politico, Jacqueline Felcher and Brian Bender collected a bunch of quotes from political leaders about the Apollo 11 mission and space exploration in general. And scanning through the article, I found two primary candidates who were quoted. Let's check out those passages now. Quote, Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Minnesota Democrat running for president, remembers her mom making a rocket-shaped jello configuration to mark the historic day, end quote. So according to my math, Klobuchar would have been about nine years old when the moon landing happened, so that sounds about right. Now, I am curious what flavor of jello was involved, but maybe we leave that for an interview later. And then there's a much longer section from a recent entrant to this race who happens to have 31 years of experience in the Navy. Quote, Sestak eyes Mars. America should return to the moon and eventually continue on to explore Mars, but it must do it as part of an international coalition, according to Joe Sestak, a former House member from Pennsylvania who announced he is joining the crowded field of Democrats running for president last month. There is so much out there that could better humanity, he tells us. I also believe America's greatest power is to convene the world. That's how I feel about space. What about a space force? The retired Navy vice admiral said the Pentagon needs to prioritize space without adding extra bureaucracy. I don't think you had to set up for space a whole other entity to accomplish what you need to do, but I'm fairly agnostic on how best to do it, he said. It could be accomplished with less bureaucracy as long as you have leader commitment from the president to the secretary of defense on down, end quote. Incidentally, I am reading Sestak's book right now, and this lines up with much of his thinking. The book, at least so far, is practical and straightforward on essentially all policy. An interesting read if you want to hear from somebody who hasn't gotten much coverage, but has a ton of experience. And just a reminder, 50 years ago today, the three Apollo 11 astronauts were in quarantine. They were just beginning their 21-day session to make sure they hadn't brought back any pathogens from the moon. That's where we were just 50 years ago. We were worried that moon diseases might kill us all. 
Now imagine, you just walked on the moon, you got back, you survived the whole thing, you splashed down, and then you had to spend three weeks in quarantine with the other two dudes you were stuck with in a tiny capsule for the whole mission. I bet that smelled amazing. In Bloomberg, Ms. Elena Egolfopoulou dug into how the Democratic primary candidates are spending on social media and whether it's getting them anything. Reading from the article just to set the scene, quote, Between January 5th and July 13th, some two dozen Democratic candidates collectively spent nearly $26 million on social media ads, according to Bully Pulpit Interactive, an online communications agency. The biggest spenders so far have been Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren at $2.9 million and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders at $2.6 million, end quote. And of course, both Warren and Sanders have tons of donors, so they are well past that 130,000 donor threshold for the September and October debates. But among the lower polling candidates, there are just a few who have reached that threshold. Reading here about one of them, quote, Some candidates have mastered the social media fundamentals better than others. Julian Castro, the former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and San Antonio Mayor, turned to Facebook to drum up fresh donors following a widely praised June 26th debate performance. Because he dominated a discussion on immigration, he targeted ads at users who clicked on video clips of those exchanges, spending nearly $600,000 between June 29th and July 6th, according to Bully Pulpit. That amount was well above the $70,000 to $100,000 per week that other Democratic candidates have spent on the platform, according to Acronym, a digital strategy firm for Democratic campaigns. Stand with Julian. Let's get him to the next debates, said some of the ads, which came with a chip-in button. His campaign believes it was money well spent. On July 8th, Castro announced he had hit the 130000 donor mark to make the September debate. Altogether, he spent $1.2 million on Facebook and Google ads over the six months ending July 13th, about 25% of the $4.1 million he has raised since announcing his candidacy in January, according to Bully Pulpit data and Federal Election Commission filings. End quote. So this is why a lot of folks are unhappy with the DNC's increased donor threshold. In order to get 130,000 donors, you may need to spend more than a million dollars and have a great debate performance and campaign on the ground. In some cases, candidates are forced to choose between online spending versus in-person visits to key states, and that is a tough choice. And we actually have candidates who have spent all that money, visited the states, and still not met the threshold yet. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is a great example. She has spent more than $1.9 million on Facebook ads. Does she have 130,000 donors? No. Is she polling at 2% in four polls? Unfortunately, not by a long shot. So to close this story out, let's hear from Chris Nolan, founder of the digital ad group Spot On. Quote, this is not a system that's set up to encourage political discourse. It's a system set up to optimize political spending. End quote. Or should I say, end sick burn. Last week, Senator Bernie Sanders gave a major speech on Medicare for All, and I covered just a snippet of that at the time. I want to get into one more part of it, which may have bigger ramifications within this field as time marches on. As part of that speech, Sanders challenged all the candidates to refuse donations from executives and lobbyists at both health insurance and drug companies. 
This is very similar to the no fossil fuel pledge we've covered before, just focused on a different set of industries. Sanders has taken the pledge, obviously, and posted the details on his website. The overall thing is called the No Health Insurance and Pharma Money Pledge, and the entire pledge reads as follows. Quote, I pledge to not take contributions from the health insurance or pharmaceutical industry and instead prioritize the health of the American people over health industry profits. Taking the pledge means that a politician or candidate's campaign will adopt a policy to not knowingly accept any contributions over $200 from the PACs, lobbyists, or executives of health insurance or pharmaceutical companies. The pledge does not apply to rank-and-file workers employed by pharmaceutical giants and health insurance companies. End quote. He then proceeds to list 208 companies that he will not accept money from. He also has returned prior donations that fall into that category. Now, this move is aimed squarely at Joe Biden, and I wouldn't be surprised to hear it come up in the debates next week. Reading here from a Politico story by Dan Diamond, quote, His pledge could put pressure on former Vice President Joe Biden, who in April held a fundraiser co-hosted by a health insurance executive just hours after the frontrunner launched his presidential campaign. Other Democratic presidential candidates have pledged to refuse money from fossil fuel interests, and Sanders is not the first to say he's rejecting some healthcare industry donations. Senator Cory Booker in 2017 said he would pause donations from the pharmaceutical industry, which has a large presence in New Jersey and had contributed to his earlier campaigns. But many of Sanders' rivals have taken money from the insurance and pharmaceutical industries. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand held a fundraiser in March hosted by a Pfizer executive. Senators Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, and Michael Bennett are among the candidates who have taken drug industry donations in previous campaigns. End quote. And last up today, a new poll released yesterday morning gives us more data on healthcare policy. The poll was sponsored by NPR, PBS NewsHour, and conducted by Marist. The methodology of the poll is high quality and included real humans doing the dialing and interviews and included cell phones, and the margins of error are a little complex, but let's just say they're between 3.5 and 3.7%, depending on which group we're talking about. Okay, so I know you're wondering, like, what the poll asked about. Well, lots of stuff about the current president and approval ratings and whether people would vote for him again, but the thing that stuck out to everybody was a pair of questions around healthcare policy, and those two questions were buried in a sea of other policy questions. The overall question was, quote, Do you think each of the following is a good idea or a bad idea? End quote. And then the pollsters listed a variety of policies one by one. We're talking here about a sample of national adults, meaning everybody they polled. So there's a plus or minus 3.5% margin of error on this particular set of questions. So the entire group was asked about the following policy. Quote, Medicare for all that want it. That is, allow all Americans to choose between a national health insurance program or their own private health insurance. End quote. 70% felt that was a good idea, 25% thought it was a bad idea, and 5% were unsure. Next up, quote, Medicare for all, that is, a national health insurance program for all Americans that replaces private health insurance, end quote. 41% felt that was a good idea, 54% thought it was a bad idea, and again, 5% were unsure. So, just to recap, a public option polls 70% overall, among all Americans. 
and Medicare for All polls at 41%. Both of those figures are subject to a 3.5% plus or minus margin of error, but that is a massive difference, 70% versus 41%. So this is a thing I keep beating the drum about. Healthcare is a genuine differentiator in this field. But the poll did not stop there. The numbers I just read were for all Americans in the poll, regardless of party affiliation. If you narrow it down to just Democrats, 90% of Democrats think a public option is a good idea, while 64% think Medicare for All is a good idea. Now, that's not a bad result for Medicare for All on its own, but it is a strong indicator of where the electorate is right now on this issue. They strongly prefer a public option. The primary electorate is, of course, made up of Democrats, so candidates who support a public option and not Medicare for All might have an edge here. By the way, the margin of error on that Democrats-only question was plus or minus 3.7 percentage points. So, stay tuned to the debates next week and we will see, again, who points out this massive gap and who is able to exploit it. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. I'm still working on those bingo cards, so I plan to have those up tomorrow sometime. That's Friday. So you'll have the weekend and Monday and, I guess, Tuesday to print them out. When those are up, I will mention it on the show, and there will be links in the show notes, and you can go grab those PDFs and print them to your heart's content. So I gotta go finish up those cards and get them out the door. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Bye.